Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Well, good morning, everyone. It is Friday, February the 11th, 2022. It is currently 9.02 a.m. Central Time, and you know the rest. I'm here in the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and we're going to start today's live broadcast. I don't know how many I'm going to do today, but our first live broadcast today is going to, we're going to start off right, I mean, right out of the gate. We're coming with some controversy. We're going to come with some things that's probably going to upset anyone and everyone, but let me tell you, it's not my fault. All right. It's not my fault. So if you get upset, don't blame me. I've tried to explain this to everyone, but one of the things that controls this program, that guides this program, that decides what I'm going to talk about when I sit down in front of this microphone and hit the big red go live button so that I'm live all over the Internet. Before I hit that button, what determines what I'm going to say is you you guys, right? You guys, though those of you on the other side of this microphone, right? I'm here on this side of the microphone, but you on, are on the other side of the microphone. Whatever you're, and, and whatever speaker you're listening to me through, a phone, iPad, a, a smart speaker, however you're listening to me, those of you on that side, you're responsible. So if you don't like what I talk about, most of the time it's not my fault. It's your fellow listeners. You you need to you need to have a meeting of all of the listeners of the Theology Central podcast and say, "Hey, who sent that email?" And someone will raise their hand like, "You are banned." Okay, well, I I don't I don't I don't really want you guys doing that cuz I like you to send me emails about anything and anything, anything and everything that you want me to talk about. But I'm here this morning to talk about something that you can probably, you already see the title. You know, you know this is going to generate controversy, but it's not, it was not up to me. I, I opened my email and the very first thing I saw this morning, the very first email I saw had this subject line. Are you ready? This is the very first email. This is how my morning started. I woke up. I just uh, grabbed my iPad. I opened email. And the very first thing I saw was this. Jesus heals a man's boyfriend. Jesus heals a man's boyfriend. And I'm like, oh boy, we're, we're, we're starting off. <laughs> we're starting off with some some interesting emails today, all right? So I was like, okay. So I, I, I opened the email, and it, it was to an article. And I at first I thought, okay, so is this going to be I – thought, I thought at first, this is the way. I'm just going to take you through my thought process. I thought, okay, so this is going to be a story about someone who was uh, – who's a homosexual – he got sick or had some horrible disease. He prayed and he's saying God healed him. Therefore, God is okay with his homosexuality. Is, is that the way this is going to go? But when I opened the article, two things caught my attention. One, Jesus heals a man's boyfriend. And then right underneath that, Bible stories they didn't tell you in church. Now that got my attention. Wait, there's a Bible story about Jesus healing a man's boyfriend. Now, I've been to lots of Bible colleges, lots of seminaries, 
lots of Bible institutes. I've got lots of degrees in theological studies and biblical studies. I, I, I'm like, okay, I maybe I missed this story. I, I'm in, I'm interested. You got you've got my attention because look, if I miss something, if I misinterpreted a biblical text, I I want to I want to be corrected. And I've always said I'm willing to listen and hear any perspective so that I can be challenged so that I can I can possibly make changes. So that immediately got my attention, all right? So Bible stories, they didn't tell you in church. So supposedly there's a Bible story about Jesus healing a man's boyfriend. All right, this is something we definitely want to check out. And then right underneath that, there's a picture. It's clearly of some kind of LGBTQ protest. And here's a person, obviously, supposedly dressed to look like Jesus, He's got a long hair, he's got a fake beard, and he's holding a sign that says, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. So clearly, just from the title, the little description underneath the title, and the photograph they have here, I'm I get it, I'm getting the idea that what we are about to look at is trying to make an argument that Jesus is okay with homosexuality. All right, now, you know what I do. Okay, some of you are new, so you don't. When I get an article like this, or if you send me a video clip or a sermon, about 99% of the time, what I'm going to do is not read. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to bring it here, get it ready, turn on the microphone and go live, and we discuss it in real time. I like that because it doesn't feel rehearsed. It doesn't, it's just like, hey, this is what someone wants to talk about. Let's talk about it in real time. Now, sometimes that proves to be a smart idea. Sometimes that proves to be a really dumb idea, but it's just something that I like to do. So I, I hope I hope you're okay with that. But let's do this. Now, here's here's kind of a, it's kind of a perspective I have, a philosophy I have. Not everyone agrees with my philosophy, but it's one that I, I, I try to encourage other people to embrace. Here's something that I have a tendency to do. Anytime someone presents an argument to me that is, say, contrary to what I may believe, anytime someone uh, even gives me a doctrinal argument from a, a doctrine that I may disagree with, what I always have a tendency to do, I try to do this all the time. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but it's, it's a philosophy that I, I strongly hold to. What I always try to do is I will immediately agree initially with the, uh, with the person providing a counter perspective. In other words, the person pr- providing, the, the person putting forth a perspective that goes against mine, I will immediately say, okay, Let's go with the idea that your view is right. Then what I do is I start there like, okay, your view is right. Now let's take it to its logical conclusion. Let's ask some questions about your perspective and see where we end up. And the reason I do that is a lot of times what we have a tendency to do is just immediately start arguing. So if, if you, pr- you put forth a perspective, I argue when we just argue back and forth, argue, 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 argue. And typically when it's done, Everyone gave their arguments. No one's actually listening to the other person and you don't really accomplish anything. It's an exercise in futility. I I get that all the time when people will email me or they'll post comments somewhere and I'll look and and sometimes I may immediately try to like put forth a counter argument and then I realize 
like, then they'll respond. And I'm like, they're not listening to me. I'm not listening to them. We've already made up our minds. We're just wasting each other's time. So now I have a tendency to either just don't respond to the email because it's like, okay, there's no point. Or sometimes I may try this and say, okay, let's, let's assume that you're right. Let's go with the idea that you're right. Now, here's where your view would take us. Sometimes that's effective. Sometimes even that's a waste of time because sadly, people don't really like to listen to anything different than their perspective. And basically, all they want to do is argue so that they can prove that they're right. They're not willing to argue to possibly see if they're wrong. Like a lot of times when people argue, they don't argue to try to find out for sure if they are right. They're arguing simply to try to prove to everyone else that they are right. I think sometimes when we enter into an argument or a disagreement, we should enter in with a perspective of, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe engaging in this argument will help me realize where I went wrong. But most people don't approach it that way. But I think starting where at least initially agreeing with the opposing side and then taking it to its logical conclusion, I think sometimes is a great way to determine if a different perspective holds up logically, if it's consistent. I think it's just a great way of, in some cases, showing that the opposing view is completely broken, even without making a counter argument. You just like, okay, you're, this is what your side says. Okay, let's, oh, let's continue. Okay, well, it falls apart right here. In other words, I didn't even have to make a counter argument. I just take that opposing view and take it to its logical conclusion. So let's, let's go with, with this idea. I want you to just stay with me here, right? Here we go. I know you're like, let's get to the article. I want to know what Bible story they're talking about. I know. I want, to, I want to find out as well. Okay, but before we get there, let's go. Let's just go with the assumption that somewhere in the Bible, Jesus actually heals a man's boyfriend. Here's a man. He's a homosexual. He has a boyfriend. The boyfriend has some disease, some injury, and Jesus comes along and heals the man's boyfriend. Let's say that actually occurred. Now, here would be, so we're going to agree that it occurred. I'm just going to go along with the argument. Okay, it actually occurred. My question would be, would that prove that Jesus is, by healing the man's boyfriend, is that Jesus is demonstrating some approval to the lifestyle? If Jesus heals someone, does it mean automatically that he approves of a person's sinful behavior, whether heterosexual, homosexual, who cares what kind of sin it is. If Jesus heals someone, does it immediately demonstrate, well, he agrees with all of the sin that they commit? Because I will tell you that I don't care who Jesus heals, right? Like even today, if, if, if I went to a hospital, and we go through the hospital and let's say Jesus starts, I, I pray and Jesus just starts healing anyone and everyone in the hospital. Would he be approving of all the sin that they've committed prior to getting sick and the sin that they're going to commit after being healed? Because I know this, no matter who is healed, they're still going to sin because they're sinners. So would it be some approval? Hey, Jesus healed you. So go forth and sin, go forth and sin. Would it be an approval of sin? So already right there, I, I, I'm not so sure of 
that that's the way it works. And I think of it from a medical perspective, right? Let, let me let me see if this, maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. In the medical world, which I worked in for 22 years, one of the things I love about the medical world is this concept that if someone comes through the door of the emergency room, we don't care, and they're injured, it's, we don't, we're not there to pass any moral judgment. We don't go, well, you know, this person's a drug addict, so let's not try to help them. This person is, is uh, the criminal. Let's not, no, you, ba- you just treat the human being irregardless of what caused it, why, who, it, it doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, what they've done. All of that is ignored, and your job is to treat the patient. Your job is to heal them, in a sense, using medicine, you are to do your best to heal them, your best to save them, your best to, to do everything you can to, to save their life. It's about the life. It's not about, in a sense, who the person is. It's not about moral judgments. So in other words, if, if, if the emergency door, door is open and here comes a cop who's been shot and here comes the person who shot the cop, from the medical perspective, I don't look at, oh, there's cop, there's person shot cop. Let's focus on the cop. No, you make a medical triage decision, which one needs immediate assistant, assistance, and that's the one who may get the priority. It, it, and, and you say, well, that's not right. That's, medicine is not making judgments about a person and who they are. It's about you preserving and saving life. It's looking at who needs medical intervention the, the, the fastest, the soonest. Who needs it immediately? That's what it's about. And I think sometimes Christians, we have this really, we have this strange mentality like, okay, oh, that person's a homosexual, then I'm not going to ba- make a cake for them or I'm not going to do this for them. Why? They're, they're, they're human beings. They're just you're, what you do, you're providing the service. You're providing a service. Does that demonstrate approval of said action? And if you're going to start only provide services for people based off moral behavior, do you realize where that would stop? <laughs> okay. I'm not making a cake for anyone who's a sinner, <laughs> period. If you're a heterosexual sinner, homosexual sinner, if you are a liar, gossip, slander, if you're a sluggard, if you're gluttonous, if you if you have lust, I'm not baking a cake for anyone. Pretty soon you won't even be, you, are, do you even have the moral standing to be the one baking the cake? Like, it, it, so it's, sometimes it's just this weird, like, I'm not going to provide services for people who are sinful. Providing the service doesn't indicate one's approval of their action. It's you providing a service for a human being. It's, it's just you, it's like in medicine, I don't say, well, I can't provide, I can't provide healthcare for someone who's a homosexual. That, that's just ridiculous. No, I treat the person. I don't go, um, I need to know your moral standing today. We need, we need to, we need a video of how moral you've been over the last 48 hours to determine if we should treat your, uh, your medical condition. It's just weird. So if, even if Jesus did heal someone, what does it demonstrate other than grace, mercy, compassion? Does it demonstrate approval of one's moral decisions? So already I, I'm like, where is this going? But let's jump into the story. I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. I'm, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to just leave it there. There's more we could unpack, but I'm going to leave it there. And of course, if anyone has any questions, they can always email me, newsif at yahoo.com. 
No one's jumped into the live chat to say, wait a minute, what are you saying? Because sooner, but there will be Christians out there who'll get upset by what I seem to be implying. But I think if you think about it biblically, it's, it's, I'm not seeing anything crazy, but here we go. So here's the, the headline again. Jesus heals a man's boyfriend. Bible stories they didn't tell you in church. Then there's a photograph of someone obviously trying to dress up like Jesus, and he has a sign saying, I'm okay with it. All right, here we go. And the implication then from those things is if Jesus heals someone who's gay, then Jesus is okay with it. All right, let's go through this. If I told you that Jesus once healed a man's boyfriend, and you can read all about it in the Bible, would that have you scratching your head? Underneath that, you bet, exclamation point. Okay, so it's in, it's in the Bible. And we clearly we weren't taught this in church. That's the implication because, you know, churches don't. Now, I understand there's some churches that may not teach everything in the Bible, but there's plenty of churches out there that will go verse by verse through any and every book. And we're not afraid of whatever is there. So, but okay, let, let's let's see where he's going to go with this. Or this the I think this individual is an is is a, is a he. I'll just say the person who wrote this. All right, here we go. You probably weren't told that story in Sunday school, and for good reason. It goes against the prevailing conservative Christian narrative that says there is no way that Jesus would have associated with, let alone affirmed, a same-sex couple. All right, now, the idea here is this, we're, we're developing kind of this sinister tone, right? All right, so in churches, they won't teach anything that goes against their conservative narrative. And there's these, I guess there's a, at least one story in the Bible that destroys the conservative narrative because it demonstrates that Jesus not only associated with, but he affirmed a same-sex couple. Now, the implication is, now if you take the headline, And now we read this. The implication is by healing a man's boyfriend, Jesus was affirming the same-sex union. Again, to me, that's a big leap. If if someone comes into, again, I'll I'll, go back to the medical world illustration. If I come in 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 the medical world and I treat someone as a homosexual, that's not affirming, uh, you know, that, and, and I show respect and compassion to their partner, right? There's their partner. And I'm like, oh, you know, you hear, yeah, so your, your, your partner is going through this and going through that. We give them the information. We show them compassion. And, and that, that doesn't show any affirmation to the union. It shows that I'm affirming them as human beings. Like, I, I, okay, but let, let's continue here. All right. Now, plus, given the prevalence of heteronormative biblical scholarship, It should come as little surprise that Jesus' potential encounter with a gay man has been written out of the story. So there's a prevalence of a heteronormative biblical scholarship. So, and so as as a result of that, the gay man, the encounter with a gay man has been written out of the story. Now, I'm 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 already curious. So is there some story that, are you claiming that there was manipulation of the text to write this out? Are you saying that, it's obvious and preachers just won't teach it. Like I, I'm, I'm very curious here of, of what, what has occurred. But let's continue reading. But believe it or not, 
when you scratch below the surface, there is a story in the Gospels where Jesus may well have encountered a gay man. And not only that, that man asked Jesus to heal his partner. And guess what Jesus did? Not only that, Jesus commended the man for his faith. Don't believe me? Fine. I'll show you the story. Oh boy. All right, here. So there, there, there's lots of claims going on here. They're going to show us the story. So I guess at this point, we're just, I'm not going to make any other commentary. I'm not going to make any more commentary. We're just going to continue reading and find out where this story is. I, if I had people in front of me right now, I don't know if anyone's currently listening live or not, but I would, I would like to stop right now and go, does anyone know which story they're referring to? It would be interesting to know. Oh, yeah, I've heard this before. It would be interesting to know how many people have heard about this controversy. They've already had to deal with the text. They've had maybe people who are LGBTQ come up to them and say, hey, Jesus healed a, a gay man. It's right here in the Bible. It would be interesting to know how many people even are, are aware of this supposed story or is this the first time you've ever heard anything about it? I, at least at this point, there's nothing registering in my brain. In other words, if I've ever had to deal with this in the past, I'm not remembering it. Now, a lot of times I have found myself saying, I've never, okay, okay, uh, someone is listening live and they said they've never heard. Okay, so that's good. I just know sometimes I will say, I've never talked about this before and then I'll I'll find out, no, you did. Because when you do as many episodes as I do, I can't remember everything that I've done, but I I just don't believe I've ever dealt with this. I, I Nothing is registering in my brain at this point, nothing. And I've dealt with a lot of, homosexual uh, literature that tries to basically justify homosexuality with the Bible. I've had to, I've had to deal with those kinds of things. Even the word homosexual, we, we did an entire you know, discussion about that. But let's see what, what we can find here. Here we go. It says, fine, I'll show you the story. Chances are, if you grew up in church, you've heard it before anyway. However, I very much doubt you heard the plausible interpretation of this story that does, in fact, write a same-sex couple into the biblical narrative. Strap in. This is the story of when Jesus healed a man's boyfriend. All right, are you ready? I mean, they're building this up. I mean, they are building this up. Now, please note, it seems very dogmatic at the beginning, and right when we get to this last paragraph, it's now referred to as a plausible interpretation, okay? So it kind of went to, it's there, now it's like, well, it's a plausible interpretation. There's, there, to, to me, a, a, a dramatic change uh, in tone right there, but here we go. If you have a Bible, I'm going to reach over and grab my Bible because I'm going to read it from my Bible, and then I'll read the, the way they have it translated here. It is Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now, I have taken Bible college classes on the Gospel of Luke. I've taken seminary classes on the Gospel of Luke. I've heard verse-by-verse teaching through the Gospel of Luke. So I am very, very interested to know 
and that and the guy. I'm I'm very interested to find out where this is in Luke about Jesus supposedly healing a man's boyfriend. But here we go. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 is the story. I would argue it'd have to go down to verse 10. Um because I think that's where the story ends, because in, I think in verse 11, Jesus raises a dead man. So I think it's verses 1 through 10 is the entire story, but that's okay. You can go 1 through 9. No, verse 10 is not going to change anything, but I know in verse 11, you start kind of a new narrative. So we'll just go say 1 through 10. Here we go. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now, when he had ended all his sayings, in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elder of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly saying, this that he was worthy uh, for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself for I'm not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither Though neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servants, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that went sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. That's the story. Now, I think the emphasis of the story is not on the the moral, the morality of the centurion or his servant, I don't think it's, the story has anything to do about how moral they were or weren't, what in, uh, activities they were engaged in or not engaged in. I think anyone reading the biblical text will see the man's humility and faith. I'm not worthy to even come to you, but I trust and believe that you can heal without me being there. So you just say the word and it can happen. It's, it's to demonstrate that this is a centurion, a centurion and this man has demonstrated great faith, demonstrated great humility. Now, I'm going to do something really quick. I'm going to do something. Let me see if there's an, yeah, centurion. Let's, let's just look up a definition of a centurion. All right, let's do this. All right. Uh, see here. Do I have? Oh, look up occupations and trades. All right, so let's look up occupations and trades. All right, occupations and trades. Okay, I thought I was going to find the uh, find it quickly. You see here, okay, going through all the occupations and trade uh, tra- uh, trades. Here we go. Here, uh, council, chamberlain, 
Let's see here. Am I not finding it? Centurion. See soldier. Okay, now we got now I gotta go to a soldier. Okay, now I have to go to a soldier. Okay. So they're they're making me really look for this one. They're making me do some work for this one. All right. I just I just want to see what they have to say here. Okay. All right. Uh I'm looking. All right, I'm looking. You see, there's Solomon. That's not going to be helpful. All right, um, where is it? Um, soldier. Now, now see occupations and trades. Okay, man, they're they're really they're really making me work for this one. They're really making me work for this one. All right, so now I got to look up soldier in this section. All right, here we go. All right, there's a messenger, merchant, overseer. Serpent charmer, servant, shepherd, trader, or tailor, I should say. Okay, here you go. Where's soldier? Okay, here we go. Soldier. This is finally, finally we get somewhere close. All right. A member of a military force. Before Saul, Israel had no professional soldiers, although each uh, tribe specialized in training its adult males and the use of particular weapons. All right, that doesn't really help me any. Um, okay. Okay, here we go. Specific, okay, uh, during New Testament times, the Romans had a very elaborate and complex army. Specific Roman soldiers are sometimes mentioned in the Bible. A centurion was a non-commissioned officer commanding at least a hundred men. A servant was often the local policeman enforcing the law with punishment pronounced by the magistrate. All right, so we have a Roman soldier. We have a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion. Now, a lot of times in these stories, let's just make sure these stories occur to demonstrate to Israel, hey, you guys are not demonstrating the faith that I can even find in a centurion. A Roman soldier demonstrates more faith. In fact, look at how Jesus ends the story um, our, uh, in verse nine, not he doesn't. The story doesn't end there. But the last thing Jesus says, he says, "I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." So what he's trying to demonstrate is that this centurion seems to have more humility and trust and faith in me than Israel, even though Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That that's the emphasis here of the story. So. The, this article wants to somehow imply that this centurion was involved in a homosexual relationship and that this is his boyfriend, his, the servant is his boyfriend or partner. And by Jesus doing this, he's affirming this LGBTQ couple. And I'm like, well, that, that's, that's a far, that's a far reach. And, and even, let's just say, even if the couple was, let's say that this was a couple, let's say that it was a same sex couple. Jesus is just affirming that this person is demonstrating humility and demonstrating a trust and a faith that Jesus can heal. It's not indicating that this man has, there's no indication what this man believes or doesn't believe about Jesus. What kind of, it's just demonstrating that this man at least has faith that Jesus can heal his servant. That, that's what it demonstrates. I don't, I don't know what this article is doing, but let, let's see how they translate it. All right, here we go. This is the translation they use. They don't, have um they don't indicate 
they do not indicate here what translation they're using. So I'm just going to read it and we'll see if we can figure it out. Here we go. Luke 7, 1 through 9. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. So clearly here's a centurion who has, he's obviously seems to love Israel and he built a synagogue. So he has some connection to Israel. All right. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes and that one to come and he, and, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, followed him and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who have been, who have been sent returned to the house Then the men who have been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. All right, now, here we go. (laughs) This is, is, I almost feel like this is reaching the level of absurdity, but okay, I'm going to try to demonstrate uh, respect to this perspective until it falls even maybe further apart, because right now I'm not seeing anything, but let's, let's continue. You may be thinking, there's nothing gay about this story. And you'd be right if you're reading it in English as a 21st century citizen of the modern world. At first glance, there is little to justify an LGBT reading. There is no explicit language of romance, sex, gender, or anything else of the sort. But once you start looking at the original language used in the story, Another potential narrative emerges. Now, let me stop right here. Oh, man. This is the go-to argument for everything, right? This is the, I mean, this happens outside of Christianity, inside Christianity. Whenever people deal with the Bible, there's always someone who's like, look, look, if you'll look up the Hebrew there, if you'll look up the Greek there, it, it, it changes everything. Every, we, Everyone's interpretation is wrong because of this one Greek word or this one Hebrew word. It changes everything. Now, I've got no problem looking up the Greek and Hebrew, but I always get very suspect when supposedly everyone's got it wrong because everyone's reading in English. All the Bible translators got it wrong. And then here's some person who wrote an article who supposedly has it all figured out because of a Greek word. We'll figure out what the Greek word is here in a minute. All right, here we go. But once you start looking at the original language used in the story, another potential narrative emerges. The first clue from the text is the use of the word slave. The centurion's dialogue with Jesus uses two different Greek words for slave. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to read anything else the article says. We're going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app 
and we're going to do a little bit of work here and see what we can discover, all right? So, Blue Letter Bible app, I'm going to turn up the volume, I'm going to go to New Testament, I'm going to go to Luke, I'm going to go to chapter 7, and I'm going to start looking for wherever the word, I guess, servant, or they said slave shows up, all right? So, I'm going to read it from the Blue Letter Bible app, all right? Here we go, Luke 7. Now, I believe this same story occurs in Matthew, so does the same thing happen there? I've got some questions here, but let's, let's just ignore this. Here we go. Luke 7. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a, a certain centurion's servant. Now, let's go here. I'm going to pull up the interlinear. All right. Centurion and a certain servant. The word servant here is this word. Strong's G, 1401, doulos, 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 doulos. It's used 127 times, 127 times. It's translated servant 120 times, bond six times, bondman one time, all right? Uh, it's outlined of a biblical usage, a slave, a bondman, man of servile, uh, servile condition, in other words, to be a servant, a slave, one who gives himself up to another's will, those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men, devoted to another, to the disregard of one's own interest, a servant, an attendant. So it can be a slave, someone who's basically put in that situation, or it can be used metaphorically as someone who gives himself up to another person's will in a sense that I'm a servant of Christ. I give up my will for Christ's will. So it can be used in like a, I willingly do this, or it can be used like, well, you're made a slave. There's nothing here at all that would indicate anything about someone's sexual preference or a sexual relationship Nothing here that I'm seeing, but let's see what they have to say here. All right, hang on, let's go back. I think they, they're going to make an argument. I think there's two different terms here. So that's, that's the first one used in verse 2, all right? So uh, when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto his elders of the Jews, beseeching him that would come and heal his servant. And now that's verse 3. The word servant is used in verse 3. His servant, it is the same Greek word, same Greek word. Strong's G, 1401, doulos, doulos. All right, the same Greek word is used in verse 3, all right? So now let's go down to verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that this is that, that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation and hath built a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying unto, unto me, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I'm not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither, the, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but I say it into word, and my servant shall be healed. So that's verse 7, right? What word for servant is used in verse 7, right? Sir, oh, okay, they do use a different Greek word here. Okay, here is the Greek word used in this verse. Strong's G, 3816, 
Pice. All right, Pice. Now, Pice is used 24 times. It's translated 10 times servant, seven times child. Uh, let's see, 10 times servant, seven times child, son, and parentheses, Christ, two times. Son, one time, manservant, one time, maid, one time, maiden, one time, young man, one time. Uh, Pice is uh, a boy as often beaten with impunity. By analogy, a girl, a child, especially a slave or servant, a minister to a king, a child made manservant, son, young man. All right. So the outline for a biblical usage is Pice can be a child, boy, or a girl. It can be an infant. It can be children. It could be a servant. It could be a slave. It can be an attendant servant, especially a king's attendant minister. All right. So he does use a different Greek word. That's, that is interesting. I, I, now, see, this is why I look at things even that I may initially disagree with. That is interesting that a different Greek word is used. I don't know if I would have ever stopped to consider that. That's interesting. Now, the fact that there's a different Greek word, is that going to change everything? We'll see. All right. That's verse seven. Uh, verse eight. Uh, he See, what Greek word does he use in verse eight? It says, for I'm a man under authority, having uh, me, having under me soldiers. And I say unto me, go and goeth, come and cometh unto my, eh, and to my servant, doeth this and he doeth it. All right. He uses the word servant here in eight kind of using it in a different way. But what word does he use for servant in eight? Um, what word does he use? He uses this word in verse eight. Strong's G, 1401, doulos, doulos. All right, we're back to doulos in verse eight. Then in verse nine, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled, uh, and he says, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith in Israel. And when they were sent, returning to the house, they found the servant whole. So there's verse 10. Okay, we'll go to verse 10. What word is used in verse 10? Well, the ver- in verse 10. Strong's G, 1401, doulos, doulos. All right, so it's only, it's only used, only one time is a different word used. Every other time in the narrative, it's doulos, 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 doulos. Now, does that one change make us stop and go, wait, wait a minute, he, using a term here. Oh, this, this could mean something. This, this, could, this could change the entire interpretation. All right, let's, let's see what they do with this in the story. All right, here we go. So once you start looking at the original language, Used in the story, another potential narrative emerges. The first clue from the text is the use of the word slave. The, the centurion's dialogue with Jesus uses two different Greek words for slave, right? Uh, the first is the, is the Greek word, which is the general word for slaves used throughout the scripture and is employed in verse eight, but not in the centurion's direct discourse with Jesus. That's important. The word the centurion uses when he refers to his slave when he is actually talking to Jesus, is the different term, and, uh, was a word that referred not only to young slaves, but to a, also to junior partners and male-male sexual relationships. Now, they just made a claim. So let's go back to this. All right. Okay. The, 
Whoa, man, this is jumping. This is making some crazy claims here. All right, so let's go back to this. The ver- the word that they are referring to here. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they're, they're referring to verse 8 because that's where he uses the term. Let me hear. No, that's do, do, do loss is used there. Where? Okay, I got to remember which verse. Got to remember which verse he uses the different term. You see here, because he says when he's talking to Jesus. uh, Okay, here. For he loveth the nation. Then Jesus went. uh, Jesus hears these things. All right, now we see. Jesus sent them when they heard, for I'm not worthy. Okay, where where was the different term? Was it verse 7? Was it verse 7? Let me see here. Yeah, okay. So verse 7 is where he uses this term. Strong's G, 3816. Pice. Pice. All right, so it's doulos versus pice. What the article is claiming, when they use doulos, that's fine. That's just a normal servant. Nothing to see there. But when he uses pice, he that's when he's supposedly talking, you know, a, a message for Jesus, and he uses a different term. So so he he he's like... On one, on every other situation, he's just using doulos, but here he's using pice. And that pice, according to the article, is a term. Let me go back and specifically read exactly what they say. Pice, so so when, uh, when he is ta- actually talking to Jesus, uh, pice is a word that refers not only to young slaves, but to junior partners and male-male sexual relationships. Yes, they had a word for that even back then. I, I don't know why that's a show. Ooh, they had a word for that back then? Oh, yeah, I, I know. All the way back in Genesis, we see the possible practice of men with men. So I don't know why that would be like, oh, wow, we didn't know that. Okay, anyone reading the Bible would know that that sin has been around for a very long time. But okay, so the Blue Letter Bible app, doesn't give us now what they would argue is well that's the blue letter bible app it's biased it's not going to give you the true meaning of the greek word here's what's interesting he doesn't tell us why or where he has derived this information that pice refers to junior partners in a male male sexual relationship so if so let's just go through this if it can refer to young slaves, which it does, then how can you be dogmatic? Let's let's say it's true. Remember, I like to go along with their, their, their argument and agree with it. Let's say it's true that it can refer to a male-male sexual relationship. Let's say it's true that the term can be used that way. Is there anything in the text that would infer that that's how it's being used and it's not simply referring to a young slave? Could it possible be, could it be, no, just, just stay with me, see if this works. Pice, uh, um, like I want to make sure I say the word correctly. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Pice, yeah. Strong's G, 3816, Pice, Pice. Is it possible, now just see if this works, that doulos is used to refer to just a slave, a servant, but he uses pice to show almost in a a term of endearment in this way. He's referring to the servant almost as if the servant is his child, 
all, because he's referring to it as because it's used to the, the, the term pice is can be translated child. It's translated child seven times in the King James. It's translated son and uh, at least two times. Uh, well, actually three times. So it can be it can refer to a child or a son. Is it is it? Hey, Dulos, he's my servant, but he's very dear to me. Pice, he's almost as a son to me. Do we have to immediately infer that this is some sexual thing? Could it be a, a term of endearment that he's almost treating the servant as a his child? And the reason I bring this up is if you look at the story, Look at uh, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 2. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick. The text itself shows that he, that he doesn't see this person just as a servant. There, he has some kind of affection for this servant. Now, some could read into that. See, he has an affection. See, it's a same-sex relationship. Or could it be he sees because he uses pice, which can refer to a child, he sees the servant almost as a son, as a child whom he cares for. All right. Um, someone just said Matthew 8, 6. Matthew 8, 6. Someone has said in chat, uh, in the chat. Uh, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented, Okay, does it use, uh, I'm going to look here, Matthew 8, 6. going to look, Matthew 8, 6. Here we go. Matthew 8, 6. Okay. If it will load, Matthew 8, 6. Here we go. Come on. Matthew 8, 6. There's Matthew 8, 6. Nice. Okay, yeah, Pice is used in Matthew 8, 6. It's, uh, uh, and uh, so that that would be, so yeah, if, if, if Pice is used in other places where someone is asking their servant to be healed, then are you going to argue that every time Pice is used, it's referring to a same-sex relationship? Or could it just be that the reason people are asking for their servant to be healed is because they have some kind of affection for the servant and sees the servant as a child or as a son? Why does it have to immediately refer to some kind of homosexual relationship and just doesn't, re it just simply refers to the fact that this person has an affection for their servant as a child or as a son to them? Why does it have to immediately be something sexual? Why is it that if there's affection between two people of the same sex, it has to be a sexual affection and it can't be compassion, friendship, father, child kind of a relationship? Why, why does it have, you know, the jump here does not make any sense to me. It does not make any, any sense at all to me. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back here and read everything they have here. All right. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to back this up and, uh, and, and I, yeah, I, we would have to look up the use of pice and the, the person listening, Heather is doing a good job of that. Let's look up every place where the word pice is used. Well, if you infer that in Luke, it refers to a same-sex relationship, you'd have to read it every time Pice is used, you would have to say, see, same-sex relationship, same-sex relationship. That 
That just, I, there's no way that works. There's no way that makes any, any sense. But so let's read their argument again. Here we go. Once you start looking at the original language used in the story, another potential narrative emerges. The first clue from the text is the use of the word slave. The centurion's dialogue with Jesus uses two different Greek words for slave. The first is doulos, which is a general word for slaves used throughout scripture. And it is employed in verse eight, but not in the centurion's direct discourse with Jesus. The word the centurion uses is the word uh, when he refers to his slave, when he uses an, uh, actually talking to Jesus is the word pais, which the term was a word that referred not only, the word pais referred not only to a young slave, but also to junior partners and male-male sexual relationship. Yes, they had a word for that back then. The use of the word on its own doesn't necessarily indicate the homosexual sense of the term. But in Luke 7, 2, okay, I knew this, this is where I figured they were going to go. The centurion further refers to the slave as, as meaning something like precious or honored. It is unusual for a slave owner to refer to his ordinary slave in those terms. Sure, the centurion's description could be his way of expressing that the slave was particularly good slave, but may also imply an emotional bond. Okay, yes, I do believe it implies an emotional bond. He has an emotional bond with his slave. I agree. The text makes it clear. Now, why do I have to read an emotional bond is sexual? Why can't I say that the emotional bond could be like he sees his servant as a child or as a son, which is what Pice seems to refer to more, far more than any indication that it refers to a same-sex relationship. Why, well, if I say I have a great affection for that person, does it have to mean that it's immediately sexual? <laughs> they, they go on to say, as uncomfortable as it may make you feel, it is well-established fact that sex between men and slaves was not all uncommon in the Roman military. Okay, I won't, I won't disagree that that was uncommon in the Roman military. I won't disagree. We do get some indication that this Roman soldier may be a little different than the average Roman soldier. Wouldn't we agree? He loves Israel and he built a synagogue. That, that, may, that may give us some indication from the text that, may, that maybe this is not your typical Roman, Roman soldier. Right? Maybe. Maybe. And put it this way, even though it was, I can say this, even though it may not have been uncommon for Roman soldiers to have sex with their slaves, even though it might have not been uncommon, you can't tell me that it occurred in every single situation and that every single Roman soldier was having sex with their slave. And if you can't say that it happens in every case, then you cannot guarantee that it was happening in this case, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that doesn't work. Well, each of these points taken in isolation does not require the readers of the Bible to assume that same-sex intercourse was involved. I suggest that the sum of the parts taken together indicate that there is a genuine possibility of a sexual relationship between the centurion and his slave. No, it doesn't. How can you say that? You've not even proven where you're getting your information about Pius, Pius referring to that. I can show you where Pius is used to just refer to a slave and, and it can be translated son. So if it can be referred to as a son, 
then this could refer to a, a relationship as seeing the sl- servant as a son. That would be more possible, more probable than your indicating that it was a same-sex relationship. Now they go on to say, shocking, right? No, not really shocking because you haven't really proved anything. What makes the story even more compelling is that the centurion, knowing that ancient religious Jews despise same-sex relationships and much the same way modern fundamentalist Christians do, decided not to go to Jesus himself, but send others to inquire of Jesus. The centurion is trying to be discreet. Do you blame him? No, wait a minute. Is he trying to be discreet? Or is the whole purpose of the story showing his humility and his faith? It's just, ama- it's just amazing to me what people can do to a biblical text. And let's make this very clear. What This happens outside of the church and it happens behind pulpits all the time when people do weird things to the text of scripture. So let's, let's just make sure we're, we, we, we don't want to be, let's just make sure as we're pointing the finger going, this is crazy. We always look to how we handle the scriptures as well. It says, do you blame him? Further, when Jesus tries to come to the centurion's house, the centurion sends word to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve uh, to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Theologian Theodore Jennings wrote in Journal of Biblical Literature that the centurion knows that religious Jews revile the sort of love he knows. Yet he goes out into the streets to find a Jewish healer and risking rejection and ridicule, ask help for the boyfriend he loves. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that, that, okay. It says, now that's a biblical interpretation you've probably never heard. You know why there's a good chance we've never heard it? Not because there's some grand conspiracy against eradicating anything in the Bible that could possibly be pro-LGBTQ. Maybe the reason we've never heard said interpretation is because it doesn't exist. It's a figment of someone's imagination. But, but stay with me here, all right? Jesus' response to the gay man. This is, they go on to say, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that the LGBTQ reading of the centurion story has not been the object of some academic scorn. <laughs> yeah, you th- I bet. So now he's going to acknowledge that this, this, uh, this idea has been basically scorned by many in the academic world. I, yeah, I, I can see why, because I know that in your article, you've not done anything to prove at all your interpretation. You've made an inference because of a different use of a Greek word for servant, bice, which can refer to a son, and you've not even acknowledged that it could, this could just, the possibility that this could refer to the, the centurion seeing his servant as a son. You've not even acknowledged that as a possible, possible rendering of it. So yeah, it's going to be scorned if this is the kind of academic nonsense you're putting forth. But it goes on. But I would be lying to you if I said that any embellishment, it goes on to say, I would be lying to you if I said that any embellishment is required for the LGBTQ version of the story to be entirely plausible as well. No, that's just not true. There is some embellishment. You're, You're ignoring what would seem to be the most obvious rendering of it. 
You haven't even bothered to explain how Pice is used in any other parts of the Bible. So there is embellishment. There isn't being honest with the text. So you have not even come close. You, you've tried to go with the le- least probable and ignored that which is most possible. <laughs> That's what you've done here. All right. But let's entertain the idea that Jesus really did have an encounter with a Roman soldier who engaged in same-sex relationship, a not uncommon occurrence in those times. Let's imagine for a moment that the centurion, out of deep, deep concern for his lover, did approach Jesus for help. How does Jesus respond? Well, to me, he responds in exactly the way I would expect Jesus to respond. Jesus distinguishes himself from the other Jews by accepting the homosexual nature of the relationship without without saying anything negative and heals the man's partner. Now, now stop right here. This, this, oh, this drives me crazy. Why would this imply that Jesus is accepting the same sex relationship? This would simply imply that Jesus had compassion and healed someone. Forget, I, 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 it blows my mind how people in the church and outside the church always places homosexuality in some weird category. It blows my mind. Homosexuality is a sin. Every person Jesus healed was a sinner. So I don't know what, I don't understand the, the, the weirdness that people have with homosexuality. It's like everybody gets weirded out. Every person he healed was a sinner. Every person he healed continued to sin. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus sinned after he was raised from the dead. So let's say he healed uh, someone who was a homosexual. It would not be proof that he agreed with the homosexuality. It would show that he showed compassion and healed that individual. Jesus went through and healed lots of people. Does, it doesn't say that he, that he you know, hey, I'm only going to heal people who will not sin anymore. I, I don't understand how this would prove some kind of an acceptance for the sinful behavior. It would demonstrate mercy and compassion on someone who was sick. <laughs> it's just the same way, like, if I'm, I'm sitting here right now, like, like I'm sitting here in, in an empty sanctuary in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and let's say all of a sudden I hear a car crash, and I go running out there. Man, and I, as I run to the car, I see their bumper sticker, you know, LGBTQ+, right? And I, I get in the car, and, and there's, there's one person in the passenger seat. They're bleeding. They're hurt. And the, per, the driver is yelling and screaming, help my husband, help my husband. And the person driving is a male. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Cannot help you. We don't help people who are involved in homosexual relationships because, uh, you know, we believe it's a sin. I wouldn't give, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't give a flip about what their relationship was. I would like, here's a human being that is hurt. What can I do to help? Call for help. Stop the bleeding. Try to ensure that they don't move to do anything to to provide a spinal cord injury or a neck injury. Do everything I can to protect to try to uh, make sure no other traffic comes in and hits the car. I would do everything in my power to save and preserve that life. And I would do everything I can to comfort the person who is upset about his partner being hurt. And I would not care at all about their sexual relationship. 
It, it, I don't get it, it. Even within Christianity, it's this weird thing like, oh, oh, if I do that, I'm going to show that I agree with their same sex relationship. But you don't think the same way about ever a heterosexual who walks into your business that you're agreeing with their improper heterosexual relationships. I don't get the weirdness that everyone has with homosexuality. It's a sin. Congratulations. Wow. You found a different sin than I commit. But I'm a sinner too and everyone else. So I, I don't know why it would, would prove anything. But okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Whole thing is irritating me the more I read this. Um, he goes on to say, does the fact that Jesus says nothing about same-sex relationship imply his tactic acceptance of the practice? I'll let you decide. I'm sure I'll cop my fair share of hate for daring to suggest the very idea. No, I'm not going to hate you for suggesting the very idea. I don't hate you. I disagree and think that you're being completely disingenuous with the text and you're so much trying to read your ideology into the text that you're completely ignoring basic logic questions and basic interpretive questions. Could it be that this is simply a servant who loves his, or a centurion who loves his servant as a son? That's plausible because the word pais, it's translated that way, literally in the Bible as son. My personal view is that the centurion ought to be celebrated as an archetype of gay discipleship. What? A gay man who risked humiliation by approaching Jesus, a potentially hostile Jew, on behalf of his lover, only to be commanded for the excellence of his faith by the very Son of God. Wow, that... I, man, I wish I could... I really wish I could read the Bible that way. I really do. I'd be like, you know, every every sin that I commit, I'd, I'd be like... And isn't it bizarre? I'll never understand this. The, the 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 LGBTQ world does this all the time. If there's a text that they think they can either put homosexuality there and put it in a good light, or if there's a text that they can make it no longer seem to condemn homosexuality, they will they will bend over backwards to make those verses either celebrate homosexuality or not condemn homosexuality. Well, then go through the Bible and do that for adultery, fornication, lust, drunkenness, murder, lying, slander. Like, let's just get every sinner off the hook. Let's just, why, why is it like, it's like on one hand, the church always wants to treat homosexuality as like some sin that is like radically different than every other sin. And then in, and at the same time, homosexuals want to do everything they can to excuse homosexuality. Well, if you're going to excuse it, then just excuse everybody. And if you're going to condemn homosexuals in some radically different way, well, then maybe maybe you should take a, a few minutes and just look at yourself and all the sins you commit. Uh, the whole story here is just bizarre to me. Um, yes, um, it's been it's uh, it's been said about David and Jonathan too. It, that's that's typically the story everyone goes to is David and Jonathan. That's typically the story everyone runs to. Um, so this one just took me by surprise because it's supposedly they're trying to make Luke seven uh, say something that I just I just don't see that it's saying. So here I'll end with this. I know we've already gone over an hour, but that's okay because this really deals more. This uh, make sure you understand this. This is very important. I, t- I tell my church this all the time. So I know, mo- I know most of the people listening live are longtime listeners. So you're already going to know what I'm going to say. Uh, so this is very important. Now, give me one second. I'm going to open up the Spreaker app just in case I don't miss anyone's uh, comments. 
right, here we go. Listen to me carefully. This is not an issue about homosexuality. This is an issue about biblical hermeneutics. So many debates that happen sometimes, like, it's it's easy to turn this into an argument about homosexuality. This is about biblical hermeneutics. This is about reading a text that I think could easily be proven based off the use of Pice in other places and how Pice is translated in other places, that this is simply refers to a centurion who loves his servant as a son or as a child. That's what it's about. Someone's come along, taken the text, and tried to infer and try to say, well, it's, it's, it's at least possible, it's plausible, but they didn't do anything to even prove possible plausible. They showed no other place in the Bible where Pice would be used referring to a same-sex relationship. They don't even tell us where they derive that information. And even if Pice is used maybe outside of the Bible to refer to a same-sex relationship, right? It doesn't mean that in this particular case, that's what's occurring. In other words, think of it this way. The word love. The word love can refer to the love between a man and a woman. Someone could use the word love to describe the love between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Doesn't mean every time I see love, it has to imply that it's referring to the love of a homosexual type. That, that, it doesn't mean that. So even if you try to argue that Pice is used somewhere to refer to same-sex relationship, the context here doesn't, it doesn't have to infer that any way, shape, or form. And clearly, the text demonstrates this. The centurion had some kind of affection for the servant. The centurion seemed to be very different than other centurions because he loved Israel and he built a synagogue. He seemed to demonstrate humility and faith in Jesus. So it's possible that the love he has here, because the word pious can clearly mean this, that he sees his servant as his son. And that's why he wants him healed. Not because he sees him or is that's his secret gay lover which doesn't seem to go at all with the text. It's not about homosexuality. It's about the mishandling of the text. And listen to me carefully. People outside the church twist scriptures, people inside the church. So whenever we see some egregious, horrible twisting of scripture like we're witnessing here, let it first be a warning to us to look in the mirror to make sure we don't do this with the text. Because just as much, just as as tempted as someone who wants to support homosexuality may be to twist the scriptures so that they can engage in homosexuality, I can be just as tempted to twist the scripture to excuse things I have done or things I want to do. I can twist scriptures to justify myself just as much as someone who's LGBTQ. Heterosexuals have been twisting scriptures to justify their behavior forever. So it's not a homosexual thing. This is a biblical hermeneutical thing. All right, we'll stop right there. What an interesting way to start my morning, okay? Now, I've got another email that we'll talk about in the next live broadcast, all right? That's coming up in about five minutes. So thanks, Heather and Will. They're, They're always listening. I really do appreciate that. It's always, it's always good when you're talking. It's just amazing uh, when, when I'm here trying to do a podcast. If 
if I don't know any, I, I always have to assume people are listening, but the second I know someone is listening, it's just a whole different vibe comes over the broadcast. So whenever you're listening, letting me know, it really does change the whole atmosphere when, when, when I, when I go back and listen. So there you go. I know we talked about a lot of controversial things yesterday. Um, and, uh, I, I don't always just like chasing the controversial things, but I have to deal with things that are either, you know, well, in this case was emailed to me. So, all right. Thanks to the person who emailed me. And, uh, well, hopefully that answered your question. All right. I'll stop right there. I'll be back on the air here shortly. Thanks for listening. Anyone else? If you'd like to email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We got a lot to do, so I need to hurry up and turn around and get started on the next one. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.